Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon Underwear, which BT dubs is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. Let me tell you why. They have smart design, premium fabrics, but for me, it's the simple shopping experience. Underwear is one of those things that I don't really feel the need to make a appointment shopping out of. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to go drive all the way to the Grove or whatever to go pick up some new underwear. The fact that you're just able to knock this out online is is amazing. And in addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work just as hard as you do. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they're shipped right to your door No going to the store, no browsing, no waiting online, no parking, no none of that. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. They'll still refund you. No questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first purchase using the promo code WATCH. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am the editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in a brand new studio, Heads He Wins, Tails I Lose, it's Andy Greenwald! We're here, man. It's fresh. It's crispy in here. A new podcast studio. It is. The air conditioner is flowing. It's a little chilly. Zach Mack is on the boards. Zach, as it turns out, likes... Zach, shout out to Binge Mode, man. Congratulations. Zach has been doing yeoman's work. Yeah. Yeah. Our producer has been just conscripted. For this incredible project yeah. that, that our maesters, well, the maester and the mother of dragons, yeah. Jason Concepcion and Mallory Rubin are doing, they're watching, rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones, and then, I believe, recording at least 60 hours per episode. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. it's it, And then Zach goes through, it's sort of like Ken Burns' Civil War documentary. He just boils it down. <laughs> no, that's like it. I was listening to it this weekend. If you like Game of Thrones, if you like television, if you like Jason and Mallory, which I think covers the Venn diagram of human experience, those are all things that we like. Then you should watch. You should really listen to this podcast. So it's binge mode. Game of Thrones. They're doing every episode of Game of Thrones. There's a d- podcast episode dedicated to every episode leading up to the new season. It is an incredible. And season two dropped today. And what great timing on my part. This is a great... Uh, I felt like I'm, I'm acting like a morning zoo DJ right now. It's, we're in a new space. Timing. But this is all a wonderful aperitif for our own Thrones coverage, which we'll be talking about soon. Yeah. Um, and so, let's just get into it, man, because I feel like it's been... It was actually a good weekend for pop culture stuff. Yeah, after... that's why we're doing our Tony Awards recap show. <laughs> so, Dear Evan oh, Hansen, ben Big Night. What a de- like, delightful guy. Were you ready to talk about that? Um, I have no idea what I'm saying. Um, these are just words I read on Vulture. Okay. Uh, <laughs> that's that's 40% of my contributions about? to the so podcast. So, here's my Friday night, right? Oh. A lot of, lot of just like, me and Juliette Littman, so excited for the NBA season to end. We're just like, yeah. we, got, we got all our coverage planned. Mm-hmm. We're assuming there's going to be a historic sweep. And I was really happy that Cleveland won because it's just like it was just obvious like what the rest of the playoffs have been missing and everything. Yeah. It was so exciting. But uh, I love it. You know what might have won Friday night? Hmm. You know what might have won Game Four of the NBA Finals? Oh, I think I do know. That Black Panther shit, dog. Yeah, yeah. People were pretty hype on that. Yeah. Just like here's a good point. Here's a good tip, Hollywood. Play Run the Jewels under your trailers. <laughs> yeah. Also, just great placement great timing yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was, was cool the, that it wasn't just like a 10 second thing that they did like the full minute and a half jam and, and we are eight months out from this movie yeah yeah so which is I, I think that's that's kind of the i'm trying to remember if that's i think star wars does like a year out 
and then they'll do like more closer. But, but I think your point is right that this felt like more than a teaser trailer. This was like a clear out, clear out the lane because someone's about to go ISO. Yeah, like, it was a very exciting. And I think that. Um, I, I don't like to get too uh, starry-eyed about this stuff because I, I think I in my head I, I I'm very sort of cynical about the superhero industrial complex. It was just last week we were it, expressing what that. it has done to Hollywood and mm-hmm. and you know I think that there are good and bad things, but um, in my heart I was kind of thinking about this because you know Wonder Woman didn't really drop off that much this week. Wonder Woman is doing... officially a phenomenon yep. at the box office and seeing. Um, uh, what's coming with Black Panther? I was kind of, I just had like a real like, damn, you guys did it. This is really he, cool. Like and all and and that phase whatever we're in, not of Marvel, but of of this of this like mm-hmm. decade plus journey since I guess Iron Man or Dark Knight or whatever you want to put the first year at. Um, the fact that it's continuing to evolve and the fact that we're getting uh, to see different stories and different kinds of stories, even if they're the same story or origin well, story and like a c- confrontation. This, that's exactly what I wanted to say and, and praise here. Like, I think that if we think about this through the prism that maybe we used to have in our, our music criticism days, which is there are a probably finite number of new songs, but potentially infinite number of new singers. Mm-hmm. Um if you're really lucky, you get both. You get an artist in, in, in the field of music that can transcend something completely new that you haven't heard before in a completely new way. But generally, what we praise is one or the other. I've never heard a melody like that or a collision of influences like that or this point of view. This is one that I've never heard yeah. before. I was thinking about that this morning when I was listening to the new Waxahachie album, which I'm so excited to talk about. I had to reference it, even though it's not coming out for another month, where I was like, this album is every album you and I loved in the 90s but I've never heard it sung by someone like Katie Crutchfield before. Um, And that's where we are kind of with the blockbuster movie industry. We spoke last week about, that I thought to me the most moving, like actually, and and by the way, I rarely say that these movies are moving. You know, they are efficient or they are um, impressive. But the opening scenes on the island of the Amazons really were moving and surprising because I just had simply never seen that before. Yeah, You see this trailer. That was not on TripAdvisor. (laughs) <laughs> no. The Germans were surprised what they found there. Um, like, no, I'm, sorry, I'm not going to do a German's joke. You sure? You you could. No. You, you haven't done an accent in the new studio yet. <laughs> I know. Um, to see this Black Panther trailer and to see just this African-American excellence in terms of performers in this movie playing these roles, looking like they're having a blast doing it with images that we haven't seen before. Um, was incredibly exciting. And I think that also speaks to something that I, I hope is contagious in this movie, which is it did look a little bit, I can't believe I'm saying this, but there was a little bit of hashtag squad goals here because it looked like the cast that Ryan Coogler, the director, assembled for this is just outrageous. Yeah, because you it know, looked when like, you think Coogler, you think Circus, and you think yeah, Freeman. Yeah, exactly. And you think about the two. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is... So many talented actors yeah, signed up for this. Absolutely, man. And you know, Chadwick Boseman is the Black Panther and was terrific in in Civil War and his small. I mean, not wasn't small, but it wasn't. This is his movie. But the Michael B. Jordan shows up in a supporting villainous role. Lupita shows up. Denai Guerrero shows up. Forrest Whitaker. Angela Bassett shows up. Um, Daniel Kaluuya, fresh off of Get Out, is yeah. in this movie, and we don't even know what kind of a supporting it looks role. Diesel. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. Look, I I think that beyond. Um, Everything that you just said, that these movies are here to stay, 
Um, they're going to continue to tease these out. They've got plans probably until 2025, 2027 for a lot of these franchises, a lot of these cinematic universes. And the real question is going to be the formal inven- invention of the directors, of the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. That's why you know Logan is in the top five movies that I've seen this year, because Logan... Um, didn't deconstruct anything as much as it was just a very different feeling movie mm-hmm. about very familiar characters and very familiar plot setup. You know, um, it's essentially Terminator Two meets a western, um, and it was awesome. Um, the same thing can go for Black Panther. I'm sure that Black Panther is going to be dealing with a lot of the same stuff that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has dealt with. I'm sure it's going to have responsibilities to the larger plot points that are being pushed forward by these movies. These movies are essentially all set up and delivery for a larger story that actually is kind of stupid. You know, like the the, yeah. the Infinity Stones <laughs> or whatever, cares. Thanos or whatever we're building towards. It's whatever. Who cares? It's, it's about the movies that get you there. And that's why you can have something as delightful as an Ant-Man or something as surprising as the first Guardians or something as, as exciting as, as what it, Black Panther looks and like. And let's also talk about when you get the wiggle room to have freedom in these movies. And um, the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie was a more than pleasant surprise mainly because you had in James Gunn someone who who had a very specific point of view and take on this. But also, I don't know if he wisely chose or it was just given to him something that was basically tangential to what they were building with the Avengers movies. So he didn't have to interact too closely. He could go out on his own a little bit. Now we're finding that these major studios, or in this case, the, the major pipelines of this IP, of the DC Universe and the Marvel Universe, they got, and I don't think this is a bad thing, but they got a little bit out in front of their skis by saying, okay, we're making Black Panther, and we're making Captain Marvel. This is in Marvel's case. And we're going to have an African-American director and a female director for these movies. They just they said that. And then they didn't have those people yeah, right. fill the slots. So Ryan Coogler, coming off, especially coming off, off of Creed, had an enormous amount of leverage to take this movie or not. They really needed him to take this movie. This is the movie that Ava DuVernay walked away from. That's correct. Right. Uh, they thought they had Ava DuVernay doing it, and then she walked away. And then basically after that, Coogler had all the leverage in this. And uh, it appears that he's taken it in the best possible way in terms of, um, you know, he definitely was involved in saying that you wanted to run the jewels in the trailer. He rewrote this whatever screenplay they had going into it. Um, He's probably responsible for getting Michael B. Jordan on board since they work so closely together. And then, you know, I mentioned last week I'd done this event with the the guys who did the Castle Rock studio. One of the guys was Alan Horn, who at the time was at Castle Rock, then went to Warner Brothers, and then now is the head of film for Disney. And I asked him about this movie. He drives a a car that is literally made of money. Can I tell you something? (laughs) I, I don't want to speak out of turn. He had a very modest sedan. He is a 75-year-old man, and I feel like he's not There's an he's not in line getting underrated, a Tesla. It, it would be really way too creepy to talk about this, Yeah, but living in Los Angeles and seeing some of the people that we see on movie screens, television yeah. screens, and then seeing them in a Hyundai Elantra, yeah, yeah, right? I saw, I saw that happen this week. I'm not going to get you too You want to name names? No. But he, I asked him about it, and his... He basically said, you know, those guys, and he was like Kevin Feige and, and, and Lou Desposito, like the Marvel machine. He's mm-hmm. like, those guys know what they're doing. He's like, but this kid, and he was talking about Ryan Coogler because Ryan Coogler is younger than us. He's like, he really knows what he wants and what he's doing. Yeah. And he was basically saying that, you know, it, this is one of those circumstances where the machine was in place for someone to use or be abused by. And it's he was basically making it sound like Coogler did what he wanted to do. And that, we'll see. We have months to find out. But that's... Even separate and apart from the movie Black Panther, the idea of a young filmmaker being able to use the machinery as opposed to getting crushed by it, 
any example of that is positive. And he's also, it's not like he's getting completely sucked into the machine. He's got a new movie he's already planning with Plan B with Michael Jordan that's based off a Rachel Aviv article from with the New Yorker called Ta-Nehisi Wrong Answer. Coates writing it. Yeah, and it's called Wrong Answer, and it's about um, a standardized test cheating scandal in public schools. But it kind of sounds a little bit like Quiz Show or something, or like a heist movie. Are almost. there vibranium deposits in that film as well? <laughs> yeah, Josh Brolin is going to be <laughs> the cheating on a throne. Totally. The tag at the end of that movie. Yeah. The expanded. Just goes, no child left behind. Uh, okay, let's also talk about something else that came up over the weekend. It was the ATX Festival down in Texas, which is a huge television I, festival. I keep waiting for you to say the Tonys. <laughs> and it's, you know, this is a big TV festival down in Austin. And I think um, one of the big storylines coming out of there was a, a possible Northern Exposure reunion. Is that a big storyline? I'm just I'm just telling you what I read. Okay. Uh, it seems like it's a fun festival. It seems like people are pretty chill having a good time down there. But there was a conversation um, about the sort of t- t- changing television landscape that happened, a panel talk mm-hmm. uh, that featured Nick Grad from FX, who's who's been on the show before. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. And uh, they got to talking a little bit about the recent, I guess, quote-unquote spike, because it, if there's none and then there's three, <laughs> a there's a spike, of cancellations over on Netflix. And Netflix recently um, walked away from The Get Down, mm-hmm. which was uh, their their epic sort of retelling of the origins of the hip-hop's origin story in the mm-hmm. Bronx, and uh, Sense8, which was the Wachowski siblings' um, sci-fi I don't even know. Because well, Yeah. Um, I was not personally a fan of either of those shows, although I heard that The Get Down Season 2 got a lot better. Part part two of Season 1. Part two of Season 1. <laughs> That's what it was. That's what we're doing? That's, okay. <laughs> no, well, I mean... That's we'll, what this we'll was? We'll get into it, but The Get Down was such an unprecedented money suck. Yeah. I mean, that... And it was such a troubled production that they decided to split it to give them more time. Yeah, I mean, Net- Sensei and The Get Down, according to reports, each episode cost ten million dollars, ten ten million dollars per episode. So that's a that's a chunk of change. That's a lot of money. That can buy you like two Dave Chappelle specials. Um, <laughs> Honestly, I don't think. It but can. I wanted to kind of get into this idea that this is something Nick said: they can't have ten thousand shows. And I think that speaking of the cancellations, I think it brings them back in the eco- ecosystem of where we're all trying to make the best shows and the best decisions. Sorry. Uh, and then someone from Hulu said, that j- what the, by canceling shows, it's merely reached the level other networks are already operating right. at in terms of a bottom line. Um, you know, and, and that if canceling shows is the phase where they are, he said, it makes sense. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about this, not because I'm like, well, let's like, let's fantasy draft some Netflix shows to get canceled. I could do that. As much as... Um, I was curious whether you had any thoughts about the idea of this. I, I feel like what's being laid, the groundwork that's being laid there is the idea that there's a Netflix bubble, right? Yeah, I mean, that's something that's been the FX party line for a while. John Landgraf, Nick's boss, has been quite public with his feud with Netflix, basically saying that you, you we cannot be compared because they refuse to operate under any of the same rules or reality that we operate in. And it's not just their refusal to cancel shows. And on that note, you remember um, Will Arnett has a show called Flaked that's pleasant. There's mm-hmm. some good things in it. Um, I like Will Arnett a lot. Uh, I believe they found out that they were renewed for season two just because they someone from Netflix mentioned it at a podium. Like, even they were not prepared to have a second season. Right. And then Netflix was like, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. So not just in that sense, but also in the sense that they still refuse to release viewership information. So 
no one has any idea what they value, how they value right. it, how things are doing. Their what success to it stories to. have a way of finding their way into the press. Exactly these, right. These stories about, and I, I had no reason to doubt them since Brad Pitt's in it, but this idea that War Machine has become a modest hit. Yeah. And that... And there was another story that War Machine is beloved at the Pentagon, which is... <laughs> that, that, that's, 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 you guys can finally put Dr. Strangelove yeah, away. Speaking of squad goals. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, sidebar, like this is a season that I didn't know about here in Los Angeles, not June Gloom, but FYC, basically, that the, yeah, that the Emmys are now... participated in FYC. Now, yeah. Right, the Emmys are now like the Oscars, basically. And so during this month, the final month of Emmy voting, there are billboards all over town yeah. reminding you of shows, because they're not just reminding us, but reminding... Emmy voters specifically. Um, and Netflix has so many shows, and obviously they're going to thumb the, the, the button a little bit harder on shows they really want nominated, but they had to at least appear to be rooting for all of them. So they rented a house and they just had events nonstop. I, for, that, that's an understatement to say they rented a house. Well, they, what, what was, what was the like space? It's like a huge installation down, down on uh, Wilshire where it's like... It's basically Netflix world. I mean, you go in and you see like all these different like exhibits that yeah. are dedicated to like The Crown and the Stranger Things and all the all, all the shows that they have. So it's pretty impressive. It's it's like it's crazy. Yeah, it, especially it's like because Epcot Center, but for Netflix, especially because they really are behind. I mean, they're not really are, but I don't want to intuit their motives. But The Crown, Stranger Things, Master of None, like oh, the, yeah. the, these I are mean, the, these are their Emmy. Whatever. The, I mean, the the thing that I think here here's what here's what uh, I find interesting about this cancellation talk. Is that it does create a sense of urgency where I think that the Netflix model has completely destroyed urgency. Mm-hmm. I think you and I would admit, and it has nothing to do necessarily with our, our television watching habits, although those have changed as well, that there has been some kind of flattening of uh, the, the kind of need to watch the show mm-hmm. the night it comes out. Totally. Um, even something for like Twin Peaks which I have waited for for so long I feel okay if I miss Sunday night I know how to avoid uh, any spoilers that might have been attached to it and I I feel like I can get to it Monday or Tuesday Mm -hmm. I haven't done that yet but I I have thought about that and Netflix is very I think that Netflix has something to do with this in the sense that there is this feeling of constant presence of television rather than the appointment viewing of television so if my wife watches all of Orange is the New Black on a Saturday she can do that, or you can stretch it out over three months, mm-hmm. and that the the conversation about it is basically a personal one. You can go seek out recaps, you can seek out message board threads or whatever. You can have conversations with people on text message, but there's not that like it's Sunday, it's happened. Right. We talk about it on Monday. Now that's very much coming from our perspective, but I do think it's true. I think that if you introduce the idea that these shows might not always be there. Mm-hmm. It does change the dynamic a little bit to it. And I feel like yeah. in the last six months, I know when I talked to Justin Simeon about Dear White People, I know when you think about things like if the specter of cancellation had been hanging over Bloodline earlier, I wonder what would have happened with Bloodline. You Those know what bad I mean? people would have done worse things. Or maybe they would have stretched out the Ben Bendelsohn plotline longer. I just I, told one story. Yeah, or just it, 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 there's, there's a lot of things that could happen to a lot of these shows if it's not you know, you guys have to have an unmitigated financial disaster, I, or at least like like spend I, a lot of money without getting a lot of fans. I agree, and it is a weird divide because it is an industry issue, and I don't know how many consumers are like, "Thank God, I had too many choices." Sure, you know, I I, I, sure. I do think that, but attempting to to put on a consumer to put a consumer spin on this, um, I remember, I'm sure everyone has gone through this, you know, 
sitting down, having some free time, wanting to watch something, going onto Netflix, and then struggling to find things. This is before the the, the, the deluge. Um, back when they would have a couple movies, the movies would disappear, they had a few shows. Now, and this also could be because I just upgraded my Apple TV, so it's a different layout Congrats. interface. Yeah. Just a little, little, little brag there. Um, I open Netflix, and it, it, it's, it feels overwhelming to me. There are, I think, too many things there, you know, and and, a ve- and it's very difficult to to navigate and to remember which things. And it, it has a very good algorithm where it tells me, you know, what sort of things I usually like. Um, unfortunately, I, I sometimes forget if to toggle. If you enjoyed watching a man eat mackerel, <laughs> well, the problem is I often forget to toggle between me as user and kids. So Can it's I, very I wish often I could suggesting like my version of Siri for you. Listen, it's often <laughs> suggesting Sophia the first back episodes. Okay, what's up, like, dog? Make a left. <laughs> I would be fine with that. So, it it feels overwhelming. It feels overwhelming, and then it, this is also a good segue, I think, into we we want to talk about Fargo mm-hmm. because we were um, we've we've been slow in keeping up with it, and we're both caught up now. But also, you know, Nick Rad was down at ATX, and hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk to Nick um, about this again. But it's interesting thinking about the state of FX this year in relation to the Netflix news. So it makes a good segue. So it makes a good segue into we want to. It makes a good segue because we want to talk about Fargo since we've been behind and we're caught up now. But I also think it's a good segue into having a larger discussion about a network like FX and how it's faring in this current climate. Yeah, let's do that discussion after a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by T.J. Miller's special Meticulously Ridiculous. Comedian, actor, and voiceover artist T.J. Miller is starring in his first HBO stand-up comedy special. The special, filmed at the Paramount Theater in T.J.'s hometown of Denver, Colorado, highlights the Silicon Valley star's high-energy, unorthodox comedic observations on life, death, and everything in between. Featuring a water-drenched T.J. Miller and plenty of audience interaction, the special offers his offbeat take on topics such as nightmares, the differences between marijuana and alcohol, his favorite historical figure, and the challenges of talking about death. T.J. Miller, meticulously ridiculous, cracks open the eccentric mind of one of the most fearlessly weird comics today and premieres on Saturday, June 17th at 10 p.m. on HBO. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by Hotel Tonight. If you are like me and you are not so great at planning ahead, I have some good news for you. There is this awesome app called Hotel Tonight, and it helps you find amazing hotel deals at the last minute. Basically, you're staying, you're, say you're staying at home in Los Angeles, and you're just like, man, I would love to just get out of the house. Maybe there's a place with a pool. Uh, and, and you just open up the Hotel Tonight app and find like great deals for like a weekend staycation or whatever you want. It sounds counterintuitive, but unlike flights, hotel rates actually get cheaper at the last minute. And Hotel Tonight helps hotels sell their unsold rooms, allowing them to pass those deals along to you. These aren't last resort places. They're actually a cool top-rated hotels that you really do want to stay in. And with so many awesome partner hotels in a ton of different countries, Hotel Tonight can help you find a great hotel almost anywhere. It's great for a spontaneous getaway or finally going on that trip you've been wanting to take for a while. Because even though the name of the app is Hotel Tonight, you can book up to a week in advance. All it takes is 10 seconds and three taps and a swipe, and you're in there. So get in on these killer last-minute deals and download the Hotel Tonight app now. Okay, Andy, we are back, and we're talking about Fargo, but we're also talking about FX. In a lot of ways, I think, um, I, w- I was thinking about this the other day, because, and we're going to get into this, because of like a lot of the, uh, not instability, but the, the wild variance of FX's schedule, mm-hmm. because of things like 
Atlanta going away while Donald Glover makes Star Wars yes. or makes Han Solo, and Louis deciding he doesn't want to make Louis for a while, mm-hmm. but he doesn't want to make he does want to make Horace and Pete elsewhere or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, Fargo is the accidental flagship show of FX, which I think is very telling mm-hmm. <laughs> for a network that probably is reorienting itself, reorienting itself to this changing television world. Yeah, I think that one, FX makes generally makes sterling creative decisions. And I think that they have been among the most um, flexible in this as things have changed, and thus they've really risen to the top while other um, networks have, have floundered. And I think the thing that, if you look back, that the decisions that John Landgraf and his team and Nick and, and Eric Schreier uh, made was that they were going to go all in on two things as, thing, as there was a lot of uncertainty. They would go all in on the talent mm-hmm. the sh- um, and support them with minimal strings attached and trust their visions and trust their own sense of scheduling and what they wanted to do and what they're passionate about. And then also be very, very early to embrace um, limited series or anthology series. Mm-hmm. And that's paid off for them enormously. Um, you mentioned Fargo. There's also um, American Crime Story, American Horror Story. Few yeah, I guess did I, well. in some ways I, 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 I always sort of forget Ryan Murphy stuff because I personally don't like it, but yeah. But your, your point being, it's hard, I think, for a flagship show to be a show that is essentially a different show every year. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, you know, it, it, so, so it's your point, by, by going all in on, the, on these sorts of shows and, all, and this sorts of talent, you, you are um, definitely going to be represented in the Emmy platform every year, which is, really does matter, as it turns out. Um, but you don't really know what shows you're going to have and what the reaction to them is going to be. You can't, you don't have that stability, that certainty of trotting out, hey, it's that, it's the gang we love. You know, it's, yeah, the, right. it's, it's that, it's those crazy uh, gangsters at the Bada Bing for another year. Sure. Uh, which was, that's my, that's basically how I describe <laughs> The Sopranos. That's how everyone remembers it. Just a bunch of kooky guys hanging out at a strip yeah. joint uh, in the pork store. Walking around the forest. Um, and also when you hitch your wagon to these this transcendental talent, transcendental talent is also often mercurial. And if you invest in it, you can't pick and choose how and when you invest in it. Mm-hmm. So the Louis deal is a great example. Like Louis sort of pioneered this, I'll do the show when I want to do it thing. And it has worked out for them. He because pioneered a couple other things. I mean, it's sort of the next great evolutionary step of the, of the half hour of the stand up comedian half hour. Yeah. where It's like these variations on themes, but he's adding in this almost you know, this is a love letter to classic cinema. And, and, yeah. It's filtered through his own perspective. It's very idiosyncratic. Now, he also has a larger production deal, which FX would argue, and they have argued when I've talked to them about this, is paying off in other ways. I mean, Better Things came from that. One Mississippi, the Tignataro show, is an FX Studios show that got happens that to baskets, be on Amazon. baskets, fuck you, Amazon. They got baskets, yeah. <laughs> um, but it also means that when you have Atlanta, which was our favorite show of last year, mm-hmm. and had just a tremendous moment and would be so primed. I mean... It would be a huge deal if that show was coming back this summer or even this fall. It's not coming back till next year. You know, they, I think they wrote the season and then he went off to space. Uh, and I mean that both in Han Solo and on the last Childish Gambino record. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of tough to say if FX is having... Last year, they, you know, they had all these Emmy nominations and all this momentum. They're having a very different year this year, I would say. And part of that is because The Americans, a show that I love, that in many ways is the most... It's not traditional, but it is a drama that has the same characters every year and is yeah. telling one story, that maybe should be their most traditional flagship show. But just when it got the Emmy attention, as I talked to Rob Harvilla about last week, I think it really faltered creatively. Um, 
and then there's also uh, Fargo. And Fargo is a really interesting case. I think the second season was a masterpiece. And I think it has just gotten better and better in my estimation since. It's just really a remarkable season of television. This season has been more of a struggle. Uh, I think we talked about that at the beginning, um, that it felt a little bit stale, a little bit familiar. Um, There were... More than that, I think it feels very... A lot of the seasons felt very small. You know, in the other seasons, there have been characters who have come from outside of the Oh You Betcha world. Yeah. And, and sort of reacted to it or spun off of it. Whether they were the gangsters coming from Kansas City last year, Bokeem Woodbine and um, what's his name? Everybody loves Raymond. Brad Garrett. Yeah. Um, or even the, the crime family from uh, North Dakota, who had a very different perspective and attitude from that part of the world. This year, it's really just been these few characters. And I think that's probably a creative choice to see what would happen with these few characters spinning. And yes, we have the villain of, of David Thewlis's villain coming in. But it, it, it hasn't had the same effect. It hasn't had the same, certainly the same emotional effect. And a lot of these episodes have felt very... Um, Almost experimental. Experimental is a nice way to put it. I was going to say sour. Um, yeah, I think that... This was the first year that I felt like the show was self-consciously Fargo the television show rather than self-consciously Fargo the movie. I, I mean, in a way. I, mm-hmm. The first season, I think, it had a lot of work to do to get out from under the Coen brothers, and it did that successfully, mm-hmm. largely, I think, on the performance of Billy Bob Thornton. But it was a it was a really cool season that got better and better and better as it went along. It did, as, as it got more confidence in its own ability to be in some way separate. Yeah, and then in the second season, um, I felt like... Just from jump, it it just had such an incredible charismatic cast and told such a very small yet big story. And this is sort of what you're talking about is like racking focus down to these granular things, these granular stories. But balancing an epic crime story with a family story with this sort of more mm-hmm. deeply philosophical, weird stuff that Noah does... Uh, season two was the most perfect balance of that that I think he struck in the three seasons of Fargo, Legion, everything else. This season felt way too Fargo to me. You know what I mean? Like the the Carrie Coon character, Carrie Coon's an incredible actress, but felt like another. Like I don't know why. If you have all this creative freedom and you have you can do all sorts of different stuff, season two showed us that. That you needed another ultimately really good cop. Yes. Yeah, and, and it, another devil character from out of town who arrives, and another group of bumbling idiots who try to, you know, who get destroyed I, by their own greed. Well, I think there's also the difference between two and three. There's really not much warmth here at all no. in the show, certainly not in the surroundings. Um, last year, it's fun when shows make us empathize with unlikely characters. And we meet Kirsten Dunst, and she's sort of a mess, and she runs over someone with her car. But her performance and the character are ultimately a triumph of um, sort of the, this, this ferocious individual who has been trapped. And we come to feel for her. Um, and the, d- G- the dancing Sm- Wilson that, right, Lottie triangle really was like the heartbeat of that show the family you know in that uh, or even the the other version of the family Gene Smart's character you know is this matriarch it was much more about family and this season and then the other thing you get when you cast Ted Danson in that role is you get all the TV part of it Mm -hmm. and I mean that in the best possible way there is no one on TV 
easier to love and root for than Ted Danson. You, you put obviously him in it. forget the first season of Damages, but yes. I rooted for him the when second he, season of Damages. When he was <laughs> indulging in a Coke orgy <laughs> in a believe a sports car. A van I was like, or something. Yeah. I, I was like, I feel for this yeah. guy. Um this season, you know, and, and and this is why I kind of think Carrie Coon may have been miscast, which is a crazy thing to say. If you tell her that you're playing she's playing a dogged small town um policewoman, mm-hmm. She's going to play the shit out of that. You know what I mean? She's going to tear, she's going to sink her teeth into it and play that part. But what she doesn't bring, and this is what made her so incredible in The Leftovers, is she doesn't, she's not going to give you extra warmth. She's not going to bring you into her world in that way. She's going to play someone who is ferocious as a person. She's not going to give that extra 10% of TV, like, well, it's been tough being a single mom, which is amazing. And yeah. it's what makes her such a strong actor. But if Noah's not going to write that extra 10% and she's not going to play it, then we lack it. Right. Um, There's also and, something here that's been happening. I, I've, I was So the last week's episode, the eighth episode. Which I think was easily the best episode of the season. And was actually I, I one of the best episodes of TV that I've seen this year. I thought it was really excellent and just really weird. And, yeah, it was really good. Um, I don't know if it was conscious or not, but it, it, the the whole opening sequence reminded me a lot of this really awesome horror movie that came out a few years ago called You're Next with the animal masks and the sort of hunting people. Uh, it, was, I, I, it was just awesome. Um, but I, I think one of the things I noticed about that episode was that the way it started with the car crash, um, with the bus crash, right. th- uh, a lot of the times on Fargo, I feel like you'll get to the end of an episode Imagine it like a, like a dial, like a toaster oven mm-hmm. that you turn the dial on and it heats all the way up. And then, like, if your toast isn't done, you just keep going, you know? I felt like Fargo episodes always started a little too cold. Mm-hmm. And the season started a little too cold. And I knew immediately how long it was going to take to heat up. Mm-hmm. And even though it's a limited, it's an anthology series in which they are not necessarily related to the season before, the episode before. Necess- I mean, the, the episode, there was obviously an episode st- episodic storytelling. But I feel like too often these episodes were starting at zero rather mm-hmm. than at 40 or wherever we left off. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going back to some colder climate. And uh, this was the first episode where I felt like this propulsion of, yeah, like this is yeah. all, what is happening, man. Well, look look what he pulled off in this episode. And this is, this is the nature of how we tell stories on television now that it, you know, we're, off, we're often kept on our heels in terms of what to expect week to week. This week had... A phenomenal action set piece. Yes. With yeah. um, and it's like I've we've gotten a little bit cynical about those because we see them all the yeah. time now in TV. But that was awesome. It was gripping. It was thrilling. It was visceral. It was terrific. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is the MVP of the season. She was so good on this, in she's, this episode. She's good in the. She's been great the whole season. She is just. She's she she's terrific and. She's chained to Mr. Wrench, who we haven't seen since season one, except as a boy in season two, because yeah. he's the only character who's been in all three thus far. Um, so we get we go from that high to then an equal high, but a very different one in the bowling alley, where we get the other thing that this show can do, which is surreality, um, uh, quasi-spiritual metaphysicality. Yeah. I mean, it was... A lot of storytelling. A lot of storytelling, but... A brilliant, brilliant set design, incredible framing, incredible direction. Yeah. And then in Ray Wise, who, by the way, is having a hell of a year. Ray Wise, just one of those actors. That Wise Thulis 2020. He gets forgotten and then yeah. gets brought back. And it's like, oh, OK, yeah, you're terrific at this. And what I thought to cast Leland Palmer as the wandering Jew, you know, I wouldn't. But that's why I'm not running a show like Fargo. <laughs> um, 
I loved that scene. Yeah. I loved everything about it. It made me excited to be watching TV again. And it's, you know, it, it, I, I hope people listening to this can understand that this is just what this job is for us now of unpacking this stuff where the Fargo project is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And when it dips, we can be frustrated with it. But I, I, I do think that the imperfection of television demands that we're going to have those dips if we're going to get these highs. There were long sections in the middle where of, of the first you know, seven episodes. I, I just could have done without it. There's there's something like the Peter and the Wolf phrasing at the beginning of I think the third episode is that's so clever, but I wasn't ready for clever because I didn't feel anything yet. There's a lot there, of there, there's Varga being bulimic. Yeah, there's a lot okay. of experiment. Okay, I, you could you could be unkind and say there's a lot of showing of the work, mm-hmm. uh, and then you could be kind and say I really admire the feeling of trying shit. Yeah, but you get to the point where you're like. Do we need to see you try shit? Like, if would this have benefited from a longer runway where you're like, yeah, I wrote this Peter and the Wolf, I wrote this Varga, the guy that yeah. believe it, but like, you know, maybe this doesn't work. But here's the thing: this is the world we're in. This is the world that FX has helped create. Yeah, it's good. which is yeah. that if if you you empower a guy, and in this case, it's Noah. Um, if you if you empower him to say, there's going to be a UFO in the middle of the shootout, and that's what's going to turn the tide of what it, what's going on, and you say, okay, go do it. Then when he says, I'm going to do Peter and the Wolf um, at the beginning of episode three or, or whatever other choice we weren't really feeling, you can't then say, are you sure about that? Right. you you gotta, you got to ride with the, the horses that you've invested yeah. in here. And, and having worked with him, I know that that's how he operates. He has a feeling, and his gut feelings have given us moments of sublime television that we haven't seen from anyone else. All of this is a part of this conversation is to say, obviously, we're going to finish the season and see where we end up. But... It would be, it's tough to characterize this season as anything but lesser than the second, which is fine. That happens. But it's been interesting to note that Noah has said, um, he said it to me, and he said it um, uh, not on a microphone, and he said it at this ATX festival, that this might be the last season of Fargo that mm-hmm. he does. That could be like a Louis, this is the last season, meaning he's going to wait a while, uh, or this really could be it. And I, th- I have mixed feelings about it, but I kind of think that might be the right call. I, you always want things to go out at their greatest, in some ways, if you're going to go out, like go out with the greatest memory of it. Yeah. And there are definitely going to be pieces, I was going to say six months from now, there'll be six weeks from now saying that the third season is low-key the greatest season, sure. and here's why. Um, but there might not be more there in this vein. And there certainly are ways, I mean, there are other avenues to express unique stories. What's the point of things. having these anthology limited series is if we're also going to be like, they have to have the same lifespan as... as these ten-year network series. I mean, they, like I, I respect it, you know. And if he feels like he's told the the three stories that he wants to tell here, that that's fine. Can I we... think obviously, like there is a there is a literal Fargo sequel yeah. of the movie that is like on the that's waiting to be told to some extent. Yeah. Um. I don't know in what you know you bring McNorman back. You know, like you do it, but I don't think don't know that she would ever cross her actual husband and go make I, I, that movie. I, I'm going to go ahead and say probably yeah. not. Um, can, can we sidebar one thing on this conversation? Yeah, sure. I, maybe this is a longer podcast, but I have a lot of questions about you and McGregor because hmm. I'm trying to think of someone who is more who is that talented, that generally liked by I believe by most audiences or at least by critics, certainly by filmmakers, that creative, he likes taking chances and doing things, and that conventionally matinee idol handsome like he could be a handsome movie guy. star 
who always kind of seems to get the hit two eighty. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the B minus. Yeah. He takes when he takes his big bets, and I, and I, we've had versions of this conversation with a Colin Farrell, but he's a very different type, and he never was quite as famous, and and certainly struggled in other ways. Um, when Ewan McGregor takes his swings, his big swings, it kind of doesn't work. Now these are the kind of swings that you're like, okay, you should; those are worth taking. But how come it never quite? I works think the out casting is an interesting. I, I you know, Thulis is has been the standout performer for me this year, but I think that. And Winstead too, but I, I wonder what would have happened if the Carrie Coon and the two McGregors was, were different character were actors. Nothing against either of those people mm-hmm. who've done work in the past that I've adored, mm-hmm. but I think that there, if, if we're talking about it, when you get to the idea that there is a coldness, and I know that mm-hmm. you know you're like she's doing the best she can with the material she has, and I agree with you, but you have to wonder what would have how the material might have been different if it was a different actress. So who knows? I want to get quickly because we have to wrap things you, up soon before we end. Do, yeah, do you, what what is your best Ewan McGregor? Like because Ewan McGregor he keeps going. Well, man. my best Ewan McGregor is still the shallow grave train spotting yeah. early run, and then I really do like him in Ghost Rider. He's quite good in that, mm-hmm. um, almost because it plays into a kind of caddish loser mm-hmm. vibe that isn't so extreme where he's like defacing himself the way he is in Fargo mm-hmm. but is it, it has like a kind of like this is a guy who never really was able to put it all together mm-hmm. feeling You're talking to about it. Ghost Rider or Ghost Rider 2? Ghost Rider 2 uh, <laughs> yes. where he just did the voice of Nicolas Cage. No, it's Ghost Rider. It's yeah. a Polanski movie. And then um he, he's low-key very good and I've decided I'm just going to mention this movie as much as possible because mm-hmm. I love it so much. Mm-hmm. He is very good in Haywire. Oh yeah, yeah. I love that and movie. And he's really good in ensembles. I think. I think he's great in like coming off the he, bench and throwing a couple setup in. Because I'm watching him in Fargo, and he came to play. You know what I mean? Oh like, yeah, he, man. He sells it. He's down. He's like, he's like, let's thin the hair. Let's go I, for it. Let's I get, just get me the the Sean Penn Carlitos wear, way hair. I just don't get the character, and I don't get any. I don't have sympathy for this character, and yet he's sort of become a sympathetic figure. Yeah, there's. A, it's just a little too cute. The fact that this is about stamps and parking lots, I think I'm just like, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, a lot of people have been asking who gives a shit about Dougie Jones. Oh yeah, uh, and I I don't want to. We can we can do a bigger peaks look when I think peaks rolls peaks, peaks. forward a little bit. But um, if Fargo kind of and I talked a little bit about like the temperature going up and down in Fargo and how it was hard to adjust. I don't really have that same feeling about Twin Peaks, even though it was literally I've literally spent three hours of my life now watching Kyle MacLachlan in a so oversized good. green jacket staring at statues. So good. And yet I am I'm still I'm still pot committed, man. Yep. I'm still here. And uh, you know, the Laura Dern cameo is incredible. What an incredible moment. Um even the things where you're just like, is this bad? Like the the uh, public service announcement traffic accident scene from last I, night. I have some thoughts about that. So let me hear them. I continue to believe strongly with enormous passion and joy in my heart that this show is transcendent, is incredible, is the highlight of my week in yeah. many ways. I, uh, Jim Ponowozik, the the New York Times TV critic, who is a great guy and I respect enormously, uh, tweeted that he thought this was the first time it was a little boring. I countered that um, I would watch just the adventures of Dougie and Janie E for 18 hours. Did you counter that on Twitter, or did you just did you just say that when you read the tweet? I don't want to say because Sean Fennessy, our friend, doesn't like it when we reference tweets we've made. Oh, okay. But I made that tweet, dog. Okay. Um, I, there is such, like the original Twin Peaks, there is such high and low in terms of emotion, in terms of camp, some, yeah, camp. Um, 
Kyle MacLachlan is delivering a a performance in clowning for the ages. I mean, I, I I'm serious. Like, I actually don't like clowns. So me, either. not like I'm not scared of them, but I actually think they're just. That like, sounds like someone who's scared of them. No, I I, I, I just mean in terms of his what the the type of role feels like he's playing. Something that we could leave behind. Okay, but you're talking about like grease paint on the face. I mean, but in even the traditional like the, the, theater sense. Yeah, but even like in that sense, I'm like kind of like he's but great. But you're loving it. He's great. You're loving it. <laughs> Naomi Watts is at 100. Yeah. Okay, this is when she first showed up in this role. I was like, this seems like a weird use of She's Naomi Watts. She's such a good actress because you can tell she has like. What are the chances that he was like? Here's what Dougie. Because I saw somebody was talking today. Oh, Adam Neiman was saying that uh, Watts's performance is filling in all the blanks on who Dougie is. Yes, <laughs> and I was like, that's incredible. I'm pretty sure David Lynch did not tell her that though. She is such a phenomenon, and you see this in everything that she does. You don't need to tell her much, and she will go to 100. Yeah. You know, that's what's totally unique about her as an actor. Um, and she's she's so much fun to watch. Look, I, I'm not in any hurry because it's coming. You know, even the one-armed man was just like, you have to wake up. Yeah. And like, okay, this is fine, guys. This is fine. Maybe people would feel different if they were binging it, if this was Netflix. But I like that we're waiting. I like what we're getting. I like that we saw Diane. I mean, who knew we were going to ever see his secretary, that, this, that she would look like that, and it would be Laura Dern. Um, the other aspects of this episode were deeply traumatizing and like discomforting in a way that only David Lynch can do. And yes, I'm talking about Ike the Spike, the yeah, uh, little the person pick, yeah. with the ice pick. That was fucked up. That was so awful <laughs> yeah. to watch and visceral. And what he's doing is he's saying, like, okay, so this guy's going to murder someone. Okay, here's a murder. You know, the camera isn't flinching. It's not being cute. It's not fading away. We saw that. Yeah. Similarly, a he sets us up with a mother and son playing beautifully, and then the son is killed. And it's horrific. And then what happens is the camera pulls the emergency brake and parks. And we are still there. And it reminded me of um, Sarah Palmer in the pilot screaming over the loss of her daughter. This has always been a part of it. But I also can't help. Who are like the five extras that they got to do the reaction? I I want to talk about that. (laughs) They were like, damn. It it was a little (laughs) bit like The Leftovers, which also began with the child disappearing uh, from a car. Uh But so I I thought of that and the trauma of that scene. But what I also thought of, and let me tell you, David Lynch does not intend this. He does not think about this at all. I can confirm this from every interview he's ever done and just every piece of work he's ever done. But it's hard in our... It's hard not to watch this with a meta sensibility about what TV is and what TV does now. And we talked about that in the premiere of Twin Peaks, The Return, with the the glass box, someone waiting for something to happen, and what happens is horrific. This reminded me a little bit of that, which is we watch a lot of shows about people dying. We watch There's a whole genre of British shows about women and children dying. Yeah, the Bad News Relay, of which is basically like a thing that happens a lot on British crime shows, where there's like a 10-minute sequence of people finding out someone's been killed. And and that came from Twin Peaks, probably, in a lot of ways. It was influenced by... This one, for me, was we saw people watching. This was a spectator event. And all the people who watched this truly horrific act, no one did anything. They all just watched in various ways. And the ways they watched, I think what what you were alluding to is, didn't seem that... It was all internal, you know. Yeah. yeah, and and that's kind of what we do. I just with feel like it, it had the it had. I mean, I think that it's more likely that David Lynch has watched um, bad driving PSAs than it is that he. You, you know what I mean? Like it, British television, I, and it and it, it feels like it felt 
like an interesting piece of pastiche, but also like I could see why somebody who isn't as emotionally committed to Twin Peaks might be like, "What the fuck is going I, on?" I was so I, that was a moment where I started to it almost pushed me off for a minute. I was like, "I can't handle this. I I can't handle kids being hurt ever." But but it was so traumatic. But this is what David Lynch does that other filmmakers don't, which is he will give you the raw, uncut emotion, and you may be discomfited by it. You may find it to be corny or str- whatever. But there it is, man. It's right there. It's going to last longer so, than makes you comfortable. One, and then Harry Dean Stanton, 90-year-old Harry know, Dean Stanton, man. is going to walk over and talk about it. I have uh, one Twin Peaks scholar question for you. What's, so what is the, the gold thing floating in the air? I have no idea. Oh, I thought that was a thing. Like that's no, not that. that doesn't I, that I, doesn't it get zeroed in? Like doesn't somebody in the lodge get zeroed into this? Some... I, I assume that was a soul leaving the body. I mean, I, I, but it's I, also like showing up on the papers that Dougie is circling. The, the those ladders and things. Yeah. I I, do, I have no idea. I've never. It maybe someone who is more scholarly okay. than I can can, well, can it, draw. Hit the, us up if you know at but, the washboard. But, but there were two things that were um, throwbacks to the old Twin Peaks in this, and one was the light turning red. Um, the traffic light turning uh-huh. red, which would often happen right before Bob would show up or okay. something spiritual would happen. Um, and then the other thing was the focus on the uh, telephone wires. Yeah, well, that's that's been a big um, a big motif this year is like the idea of this electricity and yeah. But but seeing that, I have to say, he challenged me because I'm watching that and I'm like, okay, so Harry Dean Stanton is now going to bring this boy back to life by giving up his soul or something. Like I I was already gaming out a pedestrian version. Of Twin Peaks that no. David Lynch would never make, right? But no, right. The the moral of this is you're not going to get what you want, man. You better just strap in and, and watch what you watch what you get. All right, next Monday, so this Thursday, probably do a special. You may not be here for that. We'll, we might do a Rick, that, Rick, Ringer recommends. That's what makes it special. Um, come on, you know how I feel about you. Next Monday, uh, we'll talk a little bit, probably about Peaks. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about next next week's Fargo or whatever. And, but we're gonna do. Kind of our version. Well, Preacher's coming back, too. You oh, were, Preacher's coming back, and that. I'm excited about that. But we'll probably do our version of Manola Dargas and Tony Scott's list from the New York Times yes. this weekend of the 25 best movies of the century. So far. So far. First um, of all, everyone check that out. It's just a fascinating it's exercise. It's really interesting. My mom, livid about that. What did she want on there? Just just started calling and just ranting about Renata Adler and Pauline Kale to me this morning, and I was just like, Mom, it's way too early in California for this. This is what happens when people make lists, but it was an exciting, worthy, not necessarily right, but a worthy exercise. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you and I, cinephiles from way back. My mom's point was that there needed to be more populist entertainment about that I, in that list. Yes, I'm not surprised. Let's see, let's see if my mom's right. All right, until then... Uh, great to see you. Great job, Baranski. Great new studio, Baranski. It's wonderful. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Things change, the weather changes, your mood changes. So why lock yourself into plans that might change? With Hotel Tonight, you don't have to, because you'll get incredible deals on awesome hotels, even at the last minute. Booking on Hotel Tonight gives you the freedom and flexibility to play things by ear, while knowing you'll score a great price and a great place to stay. So download the Hotel Tonight app to find seriously amazing deals now. Today's episode of The Watch was also brought to you by T.J. Miller's meticulously ridiculous special. Comedian, actor, and voiceover artist T.J. Miller is starring in his first HBO stand-up special entitled T.J. Miller, Meticulously Ridiculous. I just said that, so you know it already. The special highlights the Silicon Valley star's high-energy, unorthodox comedic observations on life, death, and everything in between. T.J. Miller, Meticulously Ridiculous, premieres on Saturday, June 17th at 10 p.m. on HBO.